Welcome to the Theology of Work podcast. The Theology of Work project exists to provide a biblical perspective on faith and work. This episode features an interview with Catherine Larry Alstorff, performed by Larry Lennenschmidt at the Hill Country Institute in Austin, Texas. Here's Larry Lennenschmidt. Welcome to Hill Country Institute Live, exploring Christ and culture. I'm Larry Lennon-Schmidt, your host. We're excited to have an ongoing conversation about issues of concern to the body of Christ through this radio program and podcasts, conferences, and other events, and our ministry of online resources to encourage the body of Christ to thoughtfully consider and interact with the issues of our day with the heart and mind of Christ. We bring ministry leaders, authors, and pastors together with you to talk about how we live and engage all of life as Christians. We visit the life and works of giants of another day, such as C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and the early church fathers. And we also spend time with people in ministries doing creative work to fight human trafficking, be good stewards of the environment, foster racial reconciliation, and create Christ-honoring art, and more, all with the heart and mind of Christ. Our special guest today is a former tech executive, a ministry leader, and author who has a long-term commitment to assist in the body of Christ in living out their faith in the workplace. Whatever our career path, whatever our profession, Catherine Leary Alsdorf has words of wisdom from her experience and reflections as part of the ministry team of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, which will be encouraging and helpful. Catherine is the co-author with Tim Keller of Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work. She joined the staff at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York in 2002 to establish the Center for Faith and Work to help people nurture a meaningful integration between their faith and their professional work. Prior to that ministry role, she spent 20 years in a combination of working with NASA and in high-tech industries. She was CEO of an online management education company and CEO of a hardware software products company, and she was president of a private satellite network uh, in New York City. She's also had other sales and marketing and consulting roles. She earned her MBA at the Darden School at the University of Virginia, and before that, a B.A. in psychology and education from Wittenberg University. She became a Christian in, in her mid, midlife and has taken some classes at Regent College, and she's been a core member and leader of the Theology of Work Project at Redeemer Presbyterian. Catherine, thank you for being here. Welcome. Thank you so much. It is a pleasure to be here with you today. Well, it's great. You know, when you think about faith and work, you're, you're, you're on the cutting edge, and there's so much that, that Redeemer's done, and we, we just want to thank you for that good work and the way it's impacted all of us. Well, thank you. It's been a, it's been a real blessing to be able to be part of what God's done there. So oh, I can imagine. Well, you when you began your your college career, you were aiming at being a teacher, and and somewhere along the line, something happened, and your direction changed. How, how did that come about? Yeah, you know, all I ever wanted to do growing up was be a teacher. I made all the little kids in the neighborhood sit and do spelling in the <laughs> middle of the summer. You know, I I wanted to be a teacher, and I got to the classroom and. Um, I was just so disillusioned by the discouragement of other teachers. You know, just all the idealism went um, out the window, I guess. And the summer after my first year of teaching, I got a summer job because I was a broke teacher Mm -hmm. and um, with an aerospace economic consulting firm, Um, a little bit of a stretch. And so in essence, I entered the world of this NASA space program that people were so excited about. And if I could just, you just couldn't begin to compare the deadness of the teacher's room 
at my little school and the excitement and the energy in this aerospace economic consulting firm. And I just thought, I want what they have. Sure. Well, there's a real sense of mission that NASA had, wasn't there? It really was. It was the heyday Mm -hmm. of that. And we were doing the economic justification for the space shuttle program. So they were pretty smart people. And so anyway, I went back and taught a second year. I taught most of um, my science units on the space program and begged them for a job after the second year. And they started me as a little programmer and research analyst, and gradually I got more and more responsibility there. So it was a very unusual switch. I never would have seen myself in that role. But I I think what's significant to our conversation is I wanted to work with people that got meaning Mm -hmm. and excitement about their work. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't understand that from a faith perspective at all. But I did understand it from a human perspective, and I thought, I just want to be around it and hope it rubs off on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, looking forward to getting to going to work in the morning. That's right. That's right. <laughs> sure. Well, so you, you progressed in your career, and then something somehow you ended up attending uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Yeah. Um, after nine years in that consulting, I went to business school and ended up in New York City and um, working for a startup high-tech company, <laughs> traveling all the time. And one of my colleagues was um, part of Tim Keller's first prayer team before the church even started. And she was one of those um, couldn't stop talking about it Christians that drove me and everyone else (laughs) nuts. And yet she persisted, inviting me to things time after time after time. And I would go and then I'd stomp out and think this is the stupidest thing I ever heard. But she'd invite me again. And it took a long time. But eventually God got me there. So God definitely used her um, and, you know, a work colleague, (laughs) ironically, a work colleague. Um, I can't imagine how else I would have found out about a church I wasn't looking. So so one, one aspect of faith and work is sharing your faith in an appropriate way. And another thing is to think about the process of, of someone coming to Christ. It's not a yes. snap. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's pretty significant. Um, I felt like once I became a Christian, people wanted me to be just like on top of the world. Well, it wasn't that experience for me. It was a it was a loss, loss, loss. You know, I had to get up on Sunday morning. I had to, my sense of humor was no longer appropriate anywhere. I felt like this wallflower. I mean, it was, there was a, I, I love the um, the metaphor of Easter Saturday. Mm-hmm. I had died mm-hmm. to that old self yeah. and I was sitting in the waiting for Easter to happen inside. And Mm -hmm. um, I think we, uh, I think almost all change requires the pain of loss Mm -hmm. before you can feel the, um, the resurrection, the new Mm -hmm. birth, so to speak. And I think we would do well as church people welcoming in um, new converts. I mean, certainly some new converts just get it right away, but many others Mm -hmm. of us, it is a long process between Good Friday and Easter morning. So well, the, the word humility comes to mind and, and how we're, we're talking to people who are considering the faith or people who are, who are new, new, new to the faith, you know, that we're, 
we've been here, but we don't have it all together yet. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. And and I think I would have not been interested in the faith had the preaching from the pulpit not been extraordinarily humble. Mm -hmm. And also talk about work a lot. Um, Work was, I was a single woman. Um, I didn't really choose it to be that work was my whole life, but it was my whole life. And um, so, so many of the examples from the pulpit were either about culture, which I could relate to, or about something related to work. And so um, I think we would, we would do well to um, bring conversation about work into all of our church life because everyone works at sure. something or another yeah. were made to work. Yeah. Well, so. and it's a, it's a holistic perspective, isn't it? To, yeah. to, to think of the whole person, emotional, right. physical, work. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, what, what particular challenges did you face as you were making this transition as a, as a worker? You know, at, and C.S. Lewis comes to mind. He said he was the most reluctant convert in all of England. And it just sounds like, you know, yeah. you, you had a similar feeling. But what challenges did you face as you were trying to integrate this new faith and, and your work? Because your, your career was taking off at this time, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, um, I felt like one of the sacrifices of becoming a Christian was I had to put my work on, I guess I wouldn't have used this language then, but on the altar mm-hmm. and say, Lord, if you want to take me somewhere else, that I would have to be open to that, but I'd invested a lot in the MBA, and I thought, oh, this is going to be really hard. And really, within the month of um, committing my life to Christ, I was asked to take over the CEO role of my company. And I thought, all right, Lord, you, this is you. I mean, the circumstances were such, there was no question um, it was God arranging this in my mind. And I thought, all right, if you are giving me this role right when you're making me a Christian, you must have something in mind, but I am clueless. I don't know how to be a CEO and I don't know how to be a Christian. So um, this is all up to you (laughs) on both sides of that. Um, So I really, I, I got I knew from the teaching I'd gotten that we were supposed to live distinctively, but I didn't know what that looked like. And in New York City, it can't be hokey. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it couldn't be a Bible on my desk and nothing else is changed. It had to be um, something um, a little deeper than that. But I, I yeah. really, truly didn't know where to have those conversations and I didn't know how to learn or grow in that. So I would say the first company, I spent most of my time praying that I wouldn't embarrass God Mm. by doing something that I knew I was very capable of doing, you know, some Mm. fallen behavior that um, would embarrass, you know, God, if people knew I was a Christian and I did that. So Mm -hmm. that was just by prayer, like, help me show up every day, Lord, help me not blow it. Help me not be an embarrassment to the Christian faith. Sure. (laughs) I have a great talent for putting both feet in my mouth at once. So (laughs) I I know what you mean. And I had a similar experience. I became a believer when I was 26, and my career was beginning to do some things, and I, I didn't know how to put that together. Yeah. I, I think that really is a, is a, a challenge when a lot comes at you, and you're, right. and you're trying to integrate it. Right. 
So right. at that point, what did you find in the way of literature or, or models? Or you anything? know, I didn't have a lot of time to read, but I was trying to learn to pray. Mm-hmm. So um, I didn't, I didn't, ha- I didn't have a lot of models except trying to learn to pray. I think that is the main thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it th- there's a couple things that just um, incidents that I remember. Um, so I'd taken over from a founder who had gotten. Um, brain cancer, had a brain tumor. So this was an awkward takeover. I had colleagues that were there going, why not me? Mm -hmm. And um, one of my colleagues, who very well could have been the one picked to take it over, came into my office right away and said, "Um, I want you to know I am behind you all the way. I will do whatever you need me to do to help you be successful. So, of course, I was very moved and encouraged by that. Well, not much longer after that, at an exec team meeting, a staff meeting, I called him out on something that he hadn't done. Mm -hmm. And he stomped into my office afterwards and said, do you know what you just did to me? Why couldn't you have done that in private? And I, you know, here was the person who said they believed in me the most and I had screwed up terribly. And, you know, there was a there was a prayer at that point. And all I could think of was I just need to say I'm sorry. I, you know, a leader needs to be able to say they're sorry. And that's just stuck in my mind so many years since then that I will screw up. Even as a Christian, even as an experienced CEO, I will screw up. I need to be repentant. Mm -hmm. That's a key to being a Christian. So an an attitude of of transparency in leaders really helps to overcome the inevitable. And and knowing you're going to fail. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's 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 an interesting time, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. It oh, was. Yeah. God gives you those little moments so that you remember them. <laughs> remember those lessons. <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember things most clearly when there's an emotional component. Uh, that's know, right. And you feel that way. You feel that gut feeling that, right. oh gosh, I did it. What yeah. did I do? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, so. you at, at this early stage, you you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the book, and, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, Catherine uh, worked with Tim Keller on Every Good Endeavor Connecting your work to God's work, which is a, a phenomenal resource to to think about and go back over again and again when you think about faith and work. But you 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 talked about some things in the book that you began immediately, almost immediately, to to begin to observe and put down, kind of as a as a uh, way of seeing that uh, some key I, I observations, I guess, is the word you used. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think some. Um it was really over a 10-year period that I felt like I was getting a better handle on what God was doing in me and what mm-hmm. the Bible was telling us God promises to do for us. I think the biggest idea was that the gospel changes everything. And I really grabbed onto that because I did feel like I'd given up a lot, you know, a lot of credibility, um a chance to get married because, you know, you don't, the, the pool of eligible men was already small. Now they have to be Christian. I mean, they this really is just nuts. Yeah. And um, the credibility in a high tech um, secular work environment, you know, there were a lot of things I felt like were, um, were I'd put on the table. 
Um, so it had to be a big gospel. It had to be a big God. This was not just going to be a comfortable little faith. This had to be a radical faith. So the idea um, we we would talk about um, at Redeemer, um, Abraham Kuyper's quote that um, he's a statesman and theologian from 120 years ago. Kind of the father, grandfather of worldview. Yes, yes, very much. And um, he said, you know, there's not a square inch of this earth that Christ doesn't declare mine. And I thought, I I want that. I want that. And God, kind of like Jacob wrestling um, with God, I thought, I'm going to wrestle with you, God, until I understand how you do this, how this works, um, how your power um, is available today, both in my own life and in the world around me. So, so some of that is at just the heart level. And this, this whole idea became the key of our ministry in New York. Um, Mm -hmm. the gospel has to be able to change me. And how does that work? The gospel has to be able to change how I relate to people. How does that work? The gospel has to be able to change my company or, the world around me. How does that work? And I think the example I gave earlier um, was the beginning of understanding that most of the time, the way I'm going to be changed is I have to die to something in myself in order for the new birth to take place in that part of my heart. So I was dying at that point to my perfection as a newly minted company CEO, um, in order to, you know, my repentance then could lead to a love and a humility in my heart versus a pride and a protection. Now, obviously it doesn't do that once and for all. It has to keep happening every day. Mm -hmm. But, um, that understanding of how the gospel would change me through, through basically repentance and rebirth or, Death, resurrection, glory is is the model we talk about at, mm-hmm. um, in Redeemer today. Um, I think is really a, has been a helpful one for me. Um, I can give another example. I can give a million examples there, but um, when Redeemer asked me in two thousand and two to move from California to New York to start a ministry, you know, I was like, "That's the last thing I have ever." wanted to do. And, um, it, I didn't have a lot of time to make the decision, but eventually I came to a realization that there were a number of things I had to die to. I had to die to my prior company had failed during the internet bust (laughs) was a darling. And then it was dead. Um, which and, was not uncommon in Silicon Valley. Which at was the time. rampant yeah. <laughs> at yeah. the time. Or Austin. But, yeah. you know, my VCs were saying, all right, you know, you're good. You just got to get the next company and, and turn it around. You can't quit now. This is, you know, you got to get back on the horse and ride it into victory. And so, you know, I'm wrestling. Well, you know, if I go work for a church, that's going to look like I'm giving up. And so there was a real death to my pride there and say, well, you know, it's actually, am I saying to God that is more important than what you're asking me to do, God? That's, you know, when you sort of look that head on. I had to die to my um, 
sort of material aspirations of paying off my house and, you know, a level of comfort. I had to die. I was getting kind of cool. I had a lot of friends because, you know, when you're hiring people, everyone likes you. Right. (laughs) So a lot of arugula salads and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You're thinking, well, you know, a lot of these people are never going to talk to me again because I will be useless to them. I'm no longer in a position of helping their their career um, mm-hmm. credibility. And so there were a lot of things I felt like I had to die to. And it was being able to consciously think of that process that often the way we change our heart changes is we have to let some things die so that God can flood in and then use us in a totally new way. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a long answer to your question. Oh, but, of, it, but, it, but it really um, one of the models. Yeah, because so, so many people in our region have experienced failures and successes of, of you know large portions. I mean, really large failures and really large successes. Dell Computer is you know an, a, a, an example that is very visible. But there's a lot of smaller tech companies here that have you know had very successful exit strategies. Uh, there, there's been a, a real estate boom lately, but if you go back a few years, there was a big real estate bust. So right. there's a there's there's a sense that that going through that, you know, you you question, you know, why why God, why did why did you let me start this company and then you let it fail? Yeah, you know, we did oh, every, yeah. we did everything, we did it well, yeah. and something, something I, I was faithful, God. Yeah. How can you let it fail? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, so. When I got to Redeemer, I tried to do a bunch of classes and panel discussions, and some set of them I called success and failure. And I would invite various people in the conversation in the congregation to come in and teach or speak, and nobody would talk about the failure part. <laughs> and I thought this is really interesting. Um, we struggle talking about failure, and. I eventually came to the conclusion that one of the distinctives of of Christians should be that we can face failure, respond to failure, and talk about failure more openly than anyone else because we know it doesn't define us. Mm -hmm. And that should be a mark of who we are, that uh, failure is, in in fact... um, you know, sometimes it's we screw up. That's certainly true. And sometimes it's because we're the world is broken and it's just what is. And what, you know, God really gives us the power to do is get up again and uh, see where he's leading us next. And even if we fail after fail after fail, we're not going to fail in heaven because it's perfect. So yeah. it, it takes a pressure off. Now, that's hard to live. Sure. That is really hard to live. But when none of us talk about it, when we're not being transparent even to each other, how are we ever going to get better at, at sure. doing what God wants us to do and walk into the hard things and the risky things? Well, part, part of the, the capacity to go through that is to know who you are in Christ, isn't it? Right, right. I mean, Which that, is, and, and, and going through it helps you know who you are in Christ. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't pick that company failure. Yeah. Um, I wasn't ready for it, but mm-hmm. the process of it strengthened me in Christ. Yeah. I mean, I, I cried out to him saying, how could you have let this happen? You called me to this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, how, you, you, Joshua defeated 
Jericho, you could have made me the only <laughs> company that succeeded in this disastrous time, but you, you didn't. You had the capacity to do that. Lord. Right. Yeah. He does, mm-hmm. but he didn't. Yeah. So I, you know, I had to um, cry out to try to understand how can, what is, what is this thing of calling mm-hmm. um, to learn that it's not, he calls us to work. He doesn't call us to success. Yeah. And even when he's with us, it doesn't guarantee we'll be successful. Sure. So. Yeah. Well, I'd like to, to we're going to need to take a brief break, yeah. but I want to visit a little bit about how we build ourselves up Yeah. for both handling success. One friend told me he reached rock top and he didn't know what to do with it. And other friends mm-hmm. have had to do mm-hmm. with the failure. Mm-hmm. So we can, mm-hmm. we can yeah, great. talk more about that in the next segment. But uh, for now, I, I, I want to welcome anybody who's listening. Thank you for being with us. We've had um, a good time with Catherine Leary Alsdorf, and we'll continue in a few moments. I want to invite you to, to visit the Hill Country Institute website. That's hillcountryinstitute.org. We have recordings and videos from our past conferences and radio programs. We have topics such as spiritual formation in the life of C.S. Lewis and faith in science and faith in art. Some of the speakers include Eugene Peterson and Alistair McGrath, Andy Crouch, John Burt, Dallas Willard, and many others. If you're looking for gifts, the CDs and DVDs make wonderful gifts. That's hillcountryinstitute.org. We also invite you to consider contributing to support this program and our outreach in our area. And you can do that at the hillcountryinstitute.org website. Thank you again, and we'll be back shortly. Welcome back to Hill Country Institute Live, Exploring Christ and Culture. This is Larry Leninschmidt, your host, and we're delighted today to have one of the leaders in faith and work ministry in the United States, Catherine Leary Alsdorf, here from New York City. She works with Tim Keller at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and they've done a magnificent job of helping all of us to think about how our faith and our work come together and matter to God. So, Catherine, thank you again for being with us. Thank you. You know, at the end of the last segment, we were, we were talking about failure and how difficult that can be and, and how you, you question, well, God, why did you let this thing happen? You know, you, you, you could have done something different. You have the power. And yet there, there, there is a coping that we have to do and maybe a preparation as well. So what are, what are things that we can do to, to prepare ourselves to handle both failure and success before and after the events? Yeah, I mean, I I never particularly felt like I was very well prepared uh, <laughs> in advance, but um, but certainly, you know, as much as possible, reminding ourselves that we wouldn't be where we are without God. So um, I think that that little humility exercise of sort of going through. Well, I really wasn't responsible for the parents I had, and I then wasn't responsible for the education I got. And yes, I mean, I had to do a little tiny bit along the way, but almost everything that has me where I am um, was not because of me. Mm-hmm. So it, it that little humility exercise um, yeah. periodically is, I think, a little bit of preparation but nonetheless, I think we're never prepared because you're giving your all to make something work. Um, I find one of my reactions is um, to get really angry 
at people that have contributed to the failure. Sometimes it's blame shifting, but sometimes, mm-hmm. the, you know, there's really, yeah. you know, your VC didn't come through with money that they promised they would um, come through with. Mm-hmm. In our last case, we had a prospective buyer who was down to the day of the signing, um, going to basically give us a new life and then backed out. Mm-hmm. So I was really angry. I mean, there, you know. When, yeah, when you're mad, uncommon, is it? Yeah, you can find people yeah. to be angry at and mm-hmm. and shift the blame. And I think as one of the the resources, the gifts we get um, because of the gospel is the act of forgiveness. It doesn't come naturally, mm. and yet, so I knew in my head, I had to forgive the people I was mad at. I mean, down to the salesperson that didn't deliver the customer that could have bailed us out. I mean, and to go through the discipline of forgiving when you don't feel it in your heart out of trust and faith that God will respond to that. Um, Sort of the, the most recent example was the, the remarkable, statements of forgiveness by the family of the victims of the Charleston shooting. Mm -hmm. And what struck me and what I could relate to, you know, even more than my own case was they, they couldn't possibly have felt it. Yeah. They did it in trust as an Mm -hmm. act of faith that in, in doing that, God would bless them and change them. And I think I was able to experience that a number of times. Now it didn't happen overnight and mm-hmm. um we need to give ourselves time. Yeah. And I did have the luxury of a couple months of sabbatical so to speak and re- I, you know I was like all right god I'm not going anywhere till you and I work this through. Yeah. But um it 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 did happen. I there were moments when I just felt a release Mm -hmm. from the anger and the bitterness and thought, okay, I could see this person again and not be carrying this with me. I can go into the next stage of my life and not be carrying this with me. And that was remarkable. Um, Because, and you know, why, why can we forgive? It's because of what we've been forgiven. Sure. And you have to sort of, at least I'm very, I have to go step by step. All right, God, help me remember what I've been forgiven. Yeah. And when I've been forgiven all that, can't I forgive this other person for this thing? That brings to mind the quote in the book that you're you're a far worse sinner. How how does that go? Yeah, it's it's uh, I, I attribute it to Jack Miller. Um, Tim and I both attribute it to Jack Miller, but it's um, you're far more. You're far worse than you ever dared think, and you're far more loved than you ever dared hope. And I had that on my mirror for probably 20 years from when I first became a Christian, Mm -hmm. because I, I do think the more we recognize our brokenness, the more we experience God's grace. It's that that sort of is the Christian life. We get to see, Mm -hmm. see deeper into how much we need this gift of salvation and we experience God's grace in a bigger way. And it is a gift. It is a gift. When we were uh, on break, we talked a bit about my own uh, experience 
up in the Northwest. I was in a startup company, and it and it failed. And I came back to Texas, and I had a lot of forgiveness to work through. And I was stuck, and, and I, I just couldn't do it. And finally, one day at lunch, I was out walking around, and I said, Lord, you know I'm trying. <laughs> I mean to break this, but I just can't do it. And and I really think that that's what God was waiting for, right. that he just wanted me to say, okay, you know, I've been waiting. <laughs> what took you so long? Yeah. Will, will you just say, uncle, and let me do what I'm here to do? I'm God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. but after that, at, at that moment, it, it, it had been a process up to then, but then there was a moment when I was freed from that, and, yeah. and it was like something awful came out of me. Yeah. And I could, I could sense that outward pouring of something. Yeah. And different people have explained it in different ways. So it kind of depends on your own right. uh, take and theology. But, but, the, but the reality is, from that point forward, I was released from the anger of unforgiveness. And so right. that has to happen in those kind of situations, doesn't it? It does. It yeah. does. I was fortunate enough to discover Regent College in Vancouver, Canada, mm-hmm. right after the company failed. So again, I think God's hand was in that because I was struggling for who can help me sort through this. Mm-hmm. Um, this is really yeah. a, a challenge. I need I need help. And I went up there for, they do these wonderful one and two week classes. And I went up and I took a class on leadership and it was a breakthrough moment like mm. that in that class where I realized that um, God was also forgiving the things I had done wrong. And I didn't want to spend the rest of my life saying, if only I'd done this or maybe I should have done that. Or, mm. um, of course, every leader is going to be imperfect, mm-hmm. sometimes hugely imperfect. And God still puts us in a leadership role. And we know that from the Bible, but it doesn't mean we apply it to ourselves. So sure. it was a great, I had a, a moment of release like that also mm-hmm. um, during that time. And it's also when I discovered, um, I think in a much deeper way, the um, resources of theology, mm-hmm. Um I guess I was a bit of a, you know, read my Bible and see what it has to say to me today in that verse, in that text. But I hadn't really um, delved into the storyline of the Bible and what I could learn from the biblical account of creation and who I was made to be as a human being mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the work that God gave human beings to do and the goodness of that work and then the effect of the fall on everything, including me, and then the hope of redemption. And I, once I discovered theology, so mm-hmm. to speak, um, I was like, these pastors have been holding out on me. <laughs> I mean, they're just giving me this little application and it doesn't apply to me. And so I don't really know what to do. Why didn't they give me the the stuff they learned in seminary, the real (laughs) deep theology. And that became a commitment at Redeemer to say, we're not going to, we're going to basically treat everyone in the congregation like they are smart enough to -hmm. understand what the pastor gets to be taught And they don't have enough time to go to seminary, but they're smart enough to get it, and we're going to deliver it. In the beginning, I couldn't call it theology. I didn't want to scare them. But um, today, everybody's like, 
wow, why haven't we gotten more theology in our church life up until now? So it really opened the door to me that there was a lot more available than I was getting in my prior 10 years of church. Mm-hmm. So. Well, when you when you think about your, your approach to faith and work, I mean, Genesis is, is your understanding of Genesis, your theological understanding begins the whole process, doesn't it? It does. I mean, we, we devoted, we, we structured every good endeavor in a create, we didn't title it exactly this, but it, the first part is creation, the second part's the fall, and the third part's redemption. Yeah. And yeah, there's so much you can get out of the first two chapters of Genesis mm-hmm. to help you understand the um, reason God put us on this earth and yeah. the kind of society and culture he wants us to cultivate. So, sure. yeah. Yeah, and if you think work is just all bad, why did why did God have work for Adam to do in the garden? Right, right. You know, that I mean, was pre-fall. And he know. gave us all these natural resources to make something of. I mean, he basically yeah. put us on earth to be entrepreneurs yeah. and um, do something with both the gifts inside us and the resources all around us that makes the world a better place. I mean, that is our mission of work. And when you look at that, it's not just your paid work. It's um, your work when you're a fifth grader Mm -hmm. learning in school, and it's your work as a parent, and it's your work in every aspect of your life. That's part of this plan that God had in the beginning for us. So in a in the cultural mandate, we're called to create and make culture. How do you think of that in the context of a business, you know, in a, or in a workplace? Maybe not, not a business quote, but it could be a law firm or it could be the, the people who I've come to value the garbage people after seeing on PBS people that didn't have their garbage picked up. And what a mess that is. Right. And what a godly calling. So if you're listening and you're a garbage man, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, if you go back to the Greek era, um, Plato and others, they they felt like any manual work was beneath real human dignity. Mm-hmm. And um, people who did manual work were more like animals, sure. the beasts of Certainly the field. Certainly philosopher kings. And, and yeah. really, they had a low value of the material earth mm-hmm. and a high value on the soul and the mind mm-hmm. and um, things like that. So... Yeah. Christianity was radical in this story that God wants us to get our hands dirty. God wants us to take the raw materials of earth. It's not just the head jobs that are what we're made we should aspire to. It's all kinds of jobs, putting all the resources we've got um, available. So I do think some of us, um, because of sort of cultural status and pressure, miss a calling to do something that might be more... Um, vocationally with your hands, craftsman, uh, craftsman kind of a thing because um, it's not as high status in our culture. But that doesn't mean, I mean, I, I think it's a brokenness of our culture that mm-hmm. we don't value that as highly. Um, it could be more satisfying for people with that gifting than creating Excel spreadsheets and now, to denigrate that, my husband loves to create Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> but There's it, value. There is, there is, but it's not the only thing that's valuable. And so yeah. I, I, it's been fun to be in Austin where um, making music is mm-hmm. so highly valued and making art is so highly valued and making food is so highly oh, it's valued. it's a foodie culture. Yeah. And, and that's very biblical. 
sure. that um, all aspects of what it takes to make a society flourish um, are important and um, not just technology. Yeah. Well, this, this region has been known for creativity, yeah. and, 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 that, and I think of that both in the arts and in the business world. Right. Because the software programmers, the you know the companies that the you know we've got leading cloud companies in San Antonio that that are just part of the the cutting edge of what's happening now. So, uh, and it's a, interesting know. to try to think. So, what? How do you know what you're doing is good? Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't ask that question very often, mm-hmm. and I don't think there's going to be one answer. Um, you know, there's going to even the best more. Um, discerning Christians are going to have different views on the importance of this particular piece of technology or mm-hmm. whether we should have drones running our automobiles instead of human beings running it. Uh, but we should be talking about it. Yeah. How do we know what is, how is it going to affect the flourishing of society? And um, we need to think outside our own company and say, how is it going to affect the different spheres beyond mm-hmm. our company? The broader industry, how is it going to affect family, how is it going to affect flourishing across the board in our society? And I think that's part of our responsibility. It's not easy sure. to think through, but we at least should be having good dialogue about that. Yeah, Jock, Jock Alul and the Technological yes. Society really, really gave us a, a starting point, a foundation. And I like what Andy Crouch has done in his book on power. Yeah. Because there's a lot of a lot of thinking there. Power can be used in such constructive ways uh, when you have it. And we all, you know, in, in, a, in a business setting, for instance, how can you use your power, <clears throat> excuse me, to impact the culture? You know, I mean, and if you would think about, you know, if you're an employee, if you're a middle-level manager, if you're an entrepreneur or a senior-level manager, how, how are the different ways – that you can impact that culture that you're in. Yeah, you can't always um, change the product or service per se of your organization, especially if you're not at the top. Mm-hmm. But you can always change the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you can be the person that's calling and talking about, calling your colleagues and talking about the more lofty mission of the company. You can be the one that's reminding people of the needs of the customer or the good that it's doing. So in in my um, corporate life, I often um, assessed the culture of the company by what people talked about around the water cooler, so to speak. Sure. Is the conversation just about the game the night before, which is fine. I'm not denigrating that. But I want there to be so much excitement about what we're doing for the customer. Mm-hmm. that um, we're talking about that. in our. We want to talk about that. We yes. want to share the stories about what we just heard from a customer or a new feature that we're creating that will help a customers do something that they couldn't do before. Mm-hmm. That is, I think, a mark of a culture that puts a high value on the work itself that's being done. Sure. And we can be the people that are helping make those cultures much more meaningful. Well, one, and one of your initiatives at, at Redeemer relates to entrepreneurs. Yes. And uh, I, I love the way in the book, and I've never, I don't think I've ever seen it put this way before, that the passion of Christ 
is an example for the passion of an entrepreneur or somebody in their workplace. Could you talk some about how, how that relates? Yeah, um, I attribute that uh, that connection of ideas to a good friend of mine, Joe Kadlicek. But she, um, we we entrepreneurs always talk about how you need to be passionate. Passionate VCs will basically judge you and decide whether to give you money based on how much passion you have for what you're doing. Yeah. And um, it isn't just um, positive energy. That they're talking about. It's the um, ability to sacrifice a lot in order to get this company or this product or this this idea to market. And that's really where the word passion comes from. I mean, the, the root of the word we now talk about in entrepreneurial worlds is Christ's suffering on the cross. So why did he suffer? Hugely, I mean, down to giving up his life because he was passionate about loving us. And what a beautiful picture. Mm -hmm. And we're called to live and work with passion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me let me take a um, well, passion. If you think about passion, you're thinking about human flourishing, ultimately, aren't you? Because a person who's passionate about what they're doing person who enjoys going to work in the morning, who knows they're contributing, who's part of a culture, they're able to flourish within that culture. So, and I'm not just talking about making an income, you know, or paying your bills, but, but what does flourishing mean to you in the context of work? Because that's such a, I love that word. Yeah. You know, I think, um, we're made, I mean, this is what you get in Genesis. We're made to, um, contribute, Mm -hmm. use our gifts to contribute. So, if you apply that to our world today, we're made to get an, have a knowledge of the purpose of what we're doing. And because we're, you know, the tasks of a normal workplace are very divided up, sometimes it's hard to connect the dots from what you're doing in that Excel spreadsheet to the overall mission of the company to the customer. An assembly line seems to me to be the, the extreme of that. Extreme of that. Yeah. Although, you know, hosp- doctors mm-hmm. today um, in medical practice would say they feel a little bit like they're in an assembly line. There's yeah. a clock on how long they can talk to a patient, and sure. the beeper goes off, and it's like the next patient comes in on the assembly line. So mm-hmm. it's not just the industrial right. age that is struggling under that kind no. of a model. Oh, billable hours for attorneys. Billable hours, exactly. So Mm -hmm. it it takes your focus from the service to the pay. The whole idea of billable hours, it it reminds you every time you jot down what you did in that hour um, that you're working for pay, not working to serve. So it's a it's an, got an ironic effect, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. It's our job as Christians in the workplace to make those connections to the bigger purpose. And I've seen people do it in all kinds of jobs. I talk in our book about my doorman who was really had more meaning in his work serving in, you know, relatively menial ways, um, a lot of really nasty people that I live with in my co-op and he did it because he only he said I couldn't even get out of bed mm-hmm. if I didn't feel like what I was doing was making a difference yeah. 
And so we need to be the people that are thinking and connecting the dots. Um, Sometimes we have to change a job because we just can't make that connection enough. But we're so made to make a difference that something dies in us when we're not seeing how that works. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's really key. So one is that sense of purpose. I think another is a, a sense of um, community. We're, we're in such an individualistic world today, um, and we're lonely. And it's you can sort of get some bravado around that, you know, the lone ranger out sure. conquering the world. But, John Wayne, I think. Yeah. But really, we're covering up for loneliness in many ways, and um, it. The opportunity in a workplace, I mean, almost by definition, a workplace means you get to work with someone else where we all get to bring our unique gifts to create something better than we could ever create alone. Mm -hmm. So really valuing community, even though it's hard and everybody's different and Mm -hmm. you can't control your colleagues and your teammates. uh, But I think we're made for that community and building that into a workplace is important. I think commitment. Is important. So I want to work with people who are committed to excellence. It was my problem in the teaching job, quite frankly. Mm. Um, I felt like I went to the lunchroom and all anybody talked about was that stupid. I can't believe they got that kid in their class that year. And I mean, I'm not saying all schools sure. and all teachers are like that, but um, some of that's in every workplace. Yeah. And Um, There wasn't a sense of commitment to the mission, to the excellence. And um, so I think think we sometimes our colleagues don't have that, but we can be a model of it and engender it in other people. Mm -hmm. And um, let's see, there's one more thing I was thinking of. There's, yeah, uh, the other is challenge. Challenge, yeah. Mm -hmm. So... um, I'm going to tell a little story if I have time, only a little time, um, about how hard it is to delegate. Um, So I was talking to somebody who is a far more experienced business leader than I am. And he, I was saying, well, you know, it's so hard to delegate. I mean, I've been working years to do this and this, you know, young punk I'm supposed to delegate to has hardly done anything and they're going to blow it. And he looked at me and he said, so let's talk about what God did. He could have done every job on earth perfectly. He knew we were going to screw it up, and he delegated it to us anyway. If God could do it, don't you think you could play a little role in that? God, the the ultimate delegator and risk taker, too. And risk taker, and boy, did he risk. Yeah, great. Catherine, thank you. I'm sorry. Gosh, I'm just so sad that we we need to end now, but we've come to the end of the program. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, if you're listening, I invite you to visit the website of Hill Country Institute. That's hillcountryinstitute.org. We have recordings and videos from our from our previous programs. Uh, we also have gifts there, DVDs and CDs. And we uh, would ask for you to consider supporting the Hill Country Institute. And you can do that through hillcountryinstitute.org. Thank you again for being with us, and we hope to be with you again soon. That was Catherine Larry Olstorf, interviewed by Larry Lennon-Schmidt. For complete show notes, go to theologyofwork.org slash hillcountry. For more information, visit our home on the web, theologyofwork.org. Like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at theowork.org.
project.